This is Joey Redner from Cigar City Brewing, and you're listening to the Small Batch Podcast. episode of the small batch podcast i am your fortunate host chris farman and when i tell you we have the best interview yet coming up on today's episode i flip and mean it we have on today's show the co-founders of dc brow brandon skull and jeffrey hancock just spilling the beans on what they're doing to just tear the northeast up they are a two-year-old brewery in dc proper washington dc proper and the surrounding area cannot get enough of them so i am totally pumped for our interview today it's a long one it's a good one it's it's super good for uh up-and-coming breweries and breweries that are thinking about getting started because they take it they take it back from the beginning they share what was successful what was unsuccessful and uh and they just killed it i love the interview today's episode is going to be a little bit different than the previous episodes in regards that i am going to focus on my specialization for most of this uh first segment before we get to the interviews and then shift from there so my specialization is uh, brewery technology back office optimization accounting and tax and really anything else that surrounding uh, the business aspect of the brewery the the numbers aspect of the brewery Um, we uh, are fortunate enough to have been working with breweries for over three years now and (coughs) we get it it's plain and simple. We get the manufacturing side of it. We get the retail side of it. And uh, we're really looking to help fast-growing breweries out there. Um, but before we get to the even deeper part of the accounting that I want to, I want to share about a little trip I took this past month um, when I drove to South Florida and attended the, the Florida Brewers Guild uh, Beer Fest. It was awesome. Uh, it, it took place in Boynton Beach, which is the home of uh, Due South, and Mike Hawker from Due South is the guild president now, so he hosted the the annual um, festival. There were 30 breweries down there, all the way from you know my neighborhood to the Panhandle down to South Florida. And um, I got to meet a lot of good brewery owners, a lot of good brewers. I got to taste amazing beer. Uh, the two that stuck out for me were um, the first one was a vanilla bean chocolate stout from Seventh Son in. Uh, Tampa area Uh, now I know Seven Suns going through uh, or trying to go through a massive expansion and and I think they're going to be a wrecking force with when they when they get bigger because this beer was flipping delicious all their beers were good but uh, when I think stout I think end of the day end of the night just uh, a beer I want to relax with folks I want to tell you this was the most drinkable delicious stout I've ever had in my life and uh, I drank in a bunch of stouts it did not sit heavy on the palate it did not sit heavy on the gut 
Uh, maybe it wasn't a stout. I don't know. But that's what they, they told me it was. Uh, absolutely delicious. Uh, the next beer that stood out for me was the Crustless PB&J from Funky Buddha Brewery. And they're, they're from South Florida, like Miami area. And uh, they, too, are going to be turning heads pretty soon uh, when their expansion gets underway. There's just so much awesome expansion going on in the industry now that um, people are kind of dialing in their their, their uh, special beers and just going from there. But uh, Funky Buddha and Seventh Son were the, the two beers that stood out for me at the, at the beer fest. And I just want to say one more thing before we get to the accounting segment. Uh, more and more I hang out with brewers and brewery owners and staff. It just amazes me how, you know, and, I, and I've, I've, I've gone out past my, my, my local spot. I mean, I've gone, I've traveled to different states, uh, met with different owners in different regions, talked to them on the Internet all the time, and just outright the nicest people uh, the most collaborative people. So uh, kudos to the brewery industry, man. This is this is going well. Even with all the breweries coming online and all the competition, just uh, great people, great energy, good stuff. Thanks, guys. So what I want to do a little bit different today is um, a buddy of mine, Dan Christofferson, who is a brewery IP attorney, trademarks, patents, um, that kind of stuff up in Washington, D.C., posted a uh, ask the, a CPA segment on his website and we got a lot of questions that came in and what I'm gonna do is that we, we I answered I, if I remember correctly I answered about 20 questions uh, you know on on the on the web but I'm gonna basically uh, dictate those questions and my and answers on my podcast over the next couple episodes because we are approaching the end of the year we are approaching tax time um, while, like I said, everything is so fun and hunky-dory in the brewing industry, at the end of the day, it is a business. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to get to the first question that I that I addressed. And and by the way, I don't know who uh, wrote the questions. Uh, it was completely anonymous. They were given to me, and I answered them. So I don't know what stage the brewery is in. I don't know uh, the maturity of the brewery. I don't know if they're startup. But um, I just want to kind of preface that ahead of time that I don't know who these questions came from. So the first question was, are you allowed to write off brewery uh, research and development pilot batches before the brewery opens? And um, I think I responded with a a great question. The answer to that, the short answer is yes. Yes, if you truly are going to start a brewery. What does truly starting a brewery look like? It looks like, um, you know, uh, state registration for the brewery. You've, uh, you have uh, applied for an, uh, an IRS EIN number. You have opened a bank account. You funded that bank account. All these, all these are indications that the business is actually going to happen. One gray area where you could fall into would be what the IRS calls hobby rules or hobby disallowed hobby losses. If the IRS deems your quote-unquote business a hobby, they will disallow all expenses in prior years, and you have to go back and pay taxes on it. Now, it is easy enough to establish a business purpose and a business um, forward, if you will, 
just something to be aware if you're a home brewer and you want to start a business just to capture your home brewing expenses and try to cut cut back on some of your taxes that will not fly so just keep that in mind uh, yes if the intent is truly to start a business and uh, it's a good it's a good thing that this this person was asking about research and development and pilot batches because once the brewery gets big enough that sort of record keeping may be eligible for additional tax credits over and above the expense deduction that you get for buying the materials good question second question i uh, want to talk about today is what happens when the ttb visits the brewery or what happens when you are called for an on-site visit or what happens when you're under ttb audit i want to start this one by saying the TTB is a government agency that has just set out to do their job. TTB is not, their purpose is not to shut down a brewery, not to make your life hell, not to disrupt business, not to take you down. So militiamen, stand stand back, stand by, it's, it, it's not that bad. They are an agency that just wants you to prove you have done what you've reported to them. So, if they call you for a review or an on-site visit, you are going to have to produce documentation to support everything you've turned into them. The Brewer's uh, Report of Operations is a beginning balance, production, how, how it was produced and what it was put into, sales and distribution, ending inventory, and then an ending balance. That's it. They're going to want to see how you came up with those numbers. It's really no different than an IRS audit. The IRS comes in, they just want verification. It, and if everything, if the back office is in order, uh, the technology is in place and dialed in, this stuff should be and will be readily available. That it's just plain as simple as that. I, I don't know. I don't know how, how else to how else to really address this one, other than the <clears throat> my my main point being, if the back office is in order, it it should just work. Send me an email to chris at sbstandard.com. If you have any questions on these two specific topics that I addressed today, I plan on addressing two per episode for the next six or seven episodes until I get through all of the questions that were uh, submitted to me. But I'll be happy to uh, field any further questions um, over email or further clarification over email. With that being said, it's time to move on to the interview. I know you guys are going to enjoy this one as much as I did, so I will see you on the other side. Hey, I want to welcome the dynamic duo from the much acclaimed brewery up in Washington, D.C., D.C. Brow. Uh, Brandon Skull and Jeff Hancock are the two brain children behind all the success they're having up there, and, and I know I've, I've had some time to kind of study you guys' brewery and, and understand your history. I, I know you guys came online in uh, early 2011. Can you tell us what you guys were doing briefly uh, on January 1st, 2010, roughly a year before you guys got started? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, well, first of all, Chris, thanks for having us on the show. Um, this is Brandon. This is Jeff. And I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know that I could pinpoint exactly what we were doing, but I mean, I can say that, you know, we were at the point where, uh, at that point, we were pretty much through our raise, um, getting near to the end of it, um, and also very actively scouting out locations. Uh, it took us 
a few months to, to find the, the perfect location or the one that we thought was you know, uh, the best suited for, for the needs that we were going to have. But at that time, we, we already had a significant amount of our capital raised, and we were really starting to look forward to ordering equipment for the space and finding the exact space that we were going to need. Yeah, we were definitely on the, uh, the tail ends, I think, of our, our former nine-to-fives, um, getting ready to shift all of our energy uh, towards getting the brewery open and uh, getting the equipment ordered. Cool. Well, that takes me, that takes me to my next question. Uh, Brandon, give me like a minute and a half of your story, uh, pre-beer. Um, sure. Give me your story. Yeah, so um, uh, just me, myself, personally, before, before this endeavor, I had spent most of my professional career uh, in beverage sales and marketing. Uh, and then most recently, before, before starting DC Brow and importing, um, I was a, a wine sales rep. It was my first job in the uh, alcohol business, uh, where I was basically you know, an account rep. I had accounts I maintained. I went door-to-door, kind of selling to, to my group of accounts. Um, and uh, I did that for a number of years before kind of uh, taking it to the next level, where I was working for an importer that was based out of New York. Um, in that job, I really got a lot more hands-on training with, uh, you know, how you, how you develop marketing for an alcohol product, um, you know, how you design pricing, how you interact with distributors. Because now I was selling this product to distributors uh, instead of selling it to, you know, uh, restaurants or retail shops and working to, to devise kind of sales tactics for the market at large. Um, during, during that time, I was also going through a... a uh, extreme kind of entrepreneurial craze where I was I was just absolutely determined to open my own business and uh, was looking at lots of options. I wrote a bunch of different business plans uh, for restaurants, one for a wine importer uh, that all just really seemed to, to be sort of stagnant in my mind because there was nothing that was making them particularly special for this point in time. Um, and then when Jeff and I connected um, I, I tossed around the idea of, of doing a, a brewery because Washington, D.C. had not had one in so long, but I didn't have a lot of the know-how associated with the industry, um, which is kind of like a good intro to lead you guys into Jeff's story because uh, that was where he came from. All right, Jeff, yeah. lay it on us. Um, so, yeah, well, before I even uh, thought about beer as a uh, glimpse in my mind, I was doing home improvements with my father. Um, that was pretty much after I finished up community college at Montgomery College, which is one of our, our local uh, colleges here in Montgomery County. Um, I did home improvements for about a good six or seven years um, and then got into brewing back around early uh, 99, uh, 2000. I started right up the road here at Franklin's Brewery and General Store, which is actually 10 minutes away from where we're located. Um, but similar to Brian, and I also took a path um, kind of in the beverage industry, just from the brewing side. Um, been brewing now about, I was brewing about, I think, nine years before I linked up with Brandon. Um, but yeah, I brewed at Franklin's right up the road from us. Um, it also, brewing also took me to Michigan uh, to follow my then girlfriend, now wife. Uh, she was doing a dual master's at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Nice. So I brewed up there for, uh, for two brew pubs, literally on the same street, opposite side of Main Street. Um, then I was able to kind of come back to the area and spend some time at Flying Dog and the Wild Goose Brewery up in uh, Frederick, Maryland, 
for the listeners that don't know, Wild Goose used to be um, one of the kind of premier mid-Atlantic breweries. They specialized in English-style ales, um, but they fell under hard times, and Flying Dog bought them out uh, back around, I think, 2006, 2007. Um, so that's where I cut my teeth. Uh, Brewing-wise, primarily on the production side before I met up with Brandon and uh, embarked on the DC Brow uh, adventure. Awesome. Tell us what your roles are. Uh, I know you kind of you kind of described them in your, your your backgrounds, but tell us your, your roles, and, and I also want to hear how your, your partnership is so successful. Um, well, basically, I'm responsible for kind of raw ingredient production, uh, work production, material management, um, coming up with new recipes to do, uh, let's see, God, uh, maintenance guy of the facilities, uh, I wear a lot of many hats, but those are, those are primarily, uh, my mind here at the brewery. Yeah, I mean, and so for me, I also wear a lot of hats, um, although some of those hats have kind of proven, uh, more relevant than others, uh, you know, as the business has progressed, but when we first started, I was primarily doing uh, you know, most of the business side as well as uh, kind of social media and marketing, um, which I all still, which I still do all of those. But you know, as we really started to figure out the business needs and how things were changing in the market from week to week, um, I really spend a lot of time now working directly with our distributor, um, kind of just putting together the order for that week, making sure that we're maximizing the amount of product that's moving out of here. Um, it can change even up to the day that we're sending out the order, how we're packaging, what we've got in Bright Tank. Um, and, you know, sometimes if I'm following that inventory every day, I can see that, you know, they might be, you know, looking better on kegs than they are on cans. And I'll switch up that packaging format so that we get the most amount of product shipped out every week, which is really kind of about optimizing, you know, what, what we're grossing every week. So, you know, we all kind of do a lot of things around here, but that's kind of like a snapshot of, of what I do. I think the reason the partnership with Jeff and I has worked out so well is because we're both, we both respect uh, what the other person brings to the team, so we don't spend a lot of time worrying or second-guessing what's going on in, in the other person's responsibilities, which really allows us to focus a lot on, on our side of things. And we're just a good match. Uh, me knowing kind of the sales distribution side of the business and Jeff really knowing uh, his chops on the production side has enabled us, I think, to, to grow a lot more than we would have otherwise. Sweet. Good stuff. Uh, Brandon, tell me a little bit about the, um, the history of brewing in D.C. And, and I know you guys were the first to come online. Uh, when was the last brewery? Uh, in how, What year was it that the last brewery was operational in D.C. before you guys came on? The last brewery was operational or closed its doors, rather, in 1956. Okay. Uh, that was a brewery that actually had a lot of history in Washington, D.C., um, and that was the old Irish Brewing Company, uh, which was later brought back as a contract brew by, by Christian Irick's grandson. But it wasn't really until we came along, um, which was, you know, 60-some years later here, that we actually uh, had a production packaging facility in D.C. Uh, there was always brew pubs here. Um, like Gordon Beer's District Chop Houses here, and they make fantastic beer. Uh, but what we did not have was a specific company that made beer for the market at large. And when we were looking at doing this project, at that time, we were counting um, over 1,100 businesses in Washington, D.C. that sold beer. 
whether they were on-premise or off-premise, uh, which means basically whether they're restaurants or retail shops, and they had nothing local to sell, um, like hyper-local, nothing from this exact area. And that was where Jeff and I really saw you know, the opportunity in this market. And so that was kind of how we designed our business. Awesome. Awesome. Let's talk about uh, community and the community acceptance and, and growth and, and kind of uh, how that's taken off. Is it, has it been, has it exceeded your expectations? Has it been right on target? Uh, what does the community think of DC Brow and what are some milestones that you guys have hit in two and a half years of, of operating? Um, the community has definitely been uh, very receptive. Uh, I know, uh, you know, Having to educate, you know, just kind of the population at large uh, about what we were and who we were was not really um, a big issue, luckily, because there was already essentially a built-in craft beer scene in D.C. There just wasn't, um, you know, a local producer within uh, D.C. proper limits. Um, but we've, uh, you know, we work with City Dogs, who is a local kind of outreach for, uh, you know, at-need pets. Um, God, we have, we have a lot of stuff. I mean, we've helped, uh, you know, essentially spawn a new, uh, essentially a new industry within the city that had been absent, uh, you know, since 1956. Um, raising the public's awareness on the beer uh, has helped. I'm kind of going in circles, so I'll pass it off to Brandon. You know, I, th I mean, I think one of the things that we did from a marketing standpoint before we were even open um, was start a very active Facebook account. Um, even up to, like, you know, when we moved into this big empty space that's now our brewery, like, if we were doing anything Thing, we were Facebooking about it. Um, I mean, there's you can go to our page right now and you'll see pictures. If you go back to the beginning, it's like Jeff and myself and his wife Marion were there painting the walls. I mean, it's we put everything that was that we thought to be slightly relevant at all up online, and I feel like that did help us to kind of build a bond with people before we even had a product. Um, and in that way, like I think that you know it didn't take us long to get assimilated into the beer culture here because when we did launch with product. People kind of knew who Jeff and I were. Uh, they knew our story. They knew about us. Um, so it made it easy to assimilate. But one of the things that we've been very vocal about is like to be like the craft, part of the craft brewing identity of a town or, or, or whatnot. It's not just about putting the name of that town in your brand. We feel like there's a bit of community responsibility that comes along with it. And Jeff was talking about like some of the, the outreach we've done with groups like City Dogs, Bread for the City, um, these are all sort of charitable organizations that we've worked with, um, and I mean, it's, de it's definitely been good for us as far as getting our word out there, even though that's not really the point of those sort of collaborations, but it's kind of like the social responsibility aspect that we really hope people, you know, people see and respect uh, when something like that comes along, and you always hope that, that those sort of activities are, are going to help you in that regard, even though you're not really doing them for, for the reason of publicity, you're really doing it. Uh, to try and make a difference and take that responsibility seriously. Yeah. So if I heard you correctly, uh, y'all took a total transparent approach to this and really brought the community in from day one and didn't just bring them in when there was uh, product to be sold and money to be made. You, you wanted them there from the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. We did, especially where we're located. Um, it's not you know the, the heart of the city um, where you have kind of a vibrant – vibrant public walking around everywhere where everyone can see it. Uh, so, you know, we had to educate the community immediately around us. Uh, there hadn't really obviously been anything like this in so long. People actually didn't know if it was a bar or a restaurant or a brew pub 
or production brewery. Uh, so doing, you know, doing that type of education through our local uh, ANC, you know, helped uh, helped educate our immediate community, and um, you know, through that, we've gained some uh, some new supporters and uh, new neighbors. Nice, good stuff. All right, I always like to hit legislative uh, rants or raves that you guys are going on in your area. Um, last month we did uh, Joe Redner from from Cigar City, and he got to talk about some Florida legislation that, that's on his plate. What's what's on your legislative radar now um, to help you? Very exciting you? stuff, Chris. Okay, uh, we've on. got we really do. We've got some really exciting stuff going on here. I mean, we've we've kind of always been at the forefront of pushing this stuff in DC because. Uh, like nobody was doing it for 50 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. Since, uh, since the Hyrick brewery closed, there hadn't been anybody really advocating for, um, you know, the rights of, of a manufacturing distribution based business such as ours that's alcohol related in DC. So we did a lot of stuff in the past. Like we weren't allowed to do, uh, uh, any sort of tastings on site. So we, we wrote a bill to allow us to do tastings and everything that we've did in the past has been great, but it kind of set us up for what we're pushing through now, which is, kind of the most exciting stuff we're, we're hopefully, uh, before, before too long, going to be able to serve to you on-premise here, which means instead of just coming in and getting a tasting, you can actually get a pint mm -hmm. right here at the brewery. Um, we'll also be able to, to sell to you beer on Sundays. Uh, in D.C., you can actually be open as a liquor store on Sunday, and you can actually be open as a grocery store selling beer on Sunday, so that means the only place you couldn't buy our beer on Sunday previously was the brewery, which is kind of a shame. So... Um, those two things are, are huge for us. Uh, the fact that we'll be able to operate on Sundays for, for our sales and also that we'll be able to actually entertain people here at the brewery now instead of just like a quick get in, get out. Um, I'm really excited about the culture that's going to create for us here, being able to, to do that. We'll be able to finally host events uh, without getting special permits, uh, just do fun sort of things here instead of the normal kind of chaotic uh, growler hour sessions that, that we have. Uh, which I think is going to really contribute to just the culture and people's understanding of, of what we do in this facility. Yeah, I, I know consumption on premise is such a hot topic uh, state by state, and I know the states that do have it, it's a win-win. It's a I mean, it's a win-win. Uh, I found that craft breweries are not a place where people are coming to get sloshed and have bar fights and cause trouble. They're coming to uh, drink in, in a in the place where it's made. So yep. it's a win-win, man. Uh, patrons love it. The, s the state and the local love it because the taxes it's generated. Uh, I wish more states would, would come online. I know South Carolina just opened some stuff up, and I know Texas is on the verge of allowing some consumption on-premise. I think it's uh, I think it's huge. Jeff, do you want to add or delete anything to uh, the legislative rants that affects you in, in the brewing process? Um. Sure. I mean, it's it's something Brandon already touched on, but yeah, the ability to sell pints, I think, is um, probably for me personally the largest of the you know one of the many topics that we're advocating for right now. Um, you know, having brewed so many different states for me, it's almost you know you don't even think about it because normally you go to a brewery, you think you by default will be able to order a pint of beer. Um, but DC, uh, you know, as long as well as many other areas, has just been a little bit behind the curve. Um, I think now they they see the you know attention it needs and um, you know the willingness to push forth these these certain bills because um, like you're saying it's a win-win. It's more revenue for us, which in turn turns into more tax revenue for the city at large. Um, so and and as far as I know, every jurisdiction can uh, can use more money. So yeah, Absolutely. and I mean anytime you're generating more income in any way. 
you're doing so much for the community. I mean, generating more income is going to allow us to hire more people, expand our business. Uh, it's all just community growth and, uh, and, and community and cultural growth. Like what you were saying, people aren't coming to the brewery to get slosh. That's right, because there's a culture here. And like the people who come out on the weekends are very respectful. Very rarely do we get somebody who's that sort of belligerent, uh, you know, the guy's not listening to anybody and he's just being offensive. It, it seems like it's, it's always good folks who come here and they want to come here because they honestly have a genuine knowledge or, or desire to obtain knowledge about what we're doing or they know about what we're doing and they want to see it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the good sort of people you meet uh, in this sort of industry. Yeah. And also, many of the most important deals that have been done in U.S. history have been done over a pint. So, food for thought. That's thoughts. true. Nice. I did not know or that. Or a good rye whiskey. <laughs> a good rye whiskey. Nice. All right. So, you guys have a ton to offer the industry. I mean, you guys have done so well in, in the two and a half years. What's the next conference y'all are attending, either solo or together, where anybody can come, you know, pick your brains or uh, invite you to have a beer so they can chat? Um, probably, uh, as far as being accessible to the public, that will more than likely be the American Craft Beer Fest, uh, that they do annually up in Boston, um, thrown by the beer advocate guys, uh, up there who have also done a tremendous amount for the scene, but that's, um, it's less of a competition, it's basically just a bunch of breweries, um, it's an invite-only thing, so they're kind of hand-chosen, uh, by the Alstrom brothers, um, and it's basically... You know, a place to showcase uh, the beer that they value and uh, a chance to interact with the general public. And it's always a blast. I mean, that city is just an incredible city. Um, regardless of whether you're a, a Red Sox fan or not, uh, I find that some of the, the, the most uh, genuine people that we've come across city-wise in this industry have been from up there. Everybody seems to, to really have a good bit of knowledge about craft beer up there, and you meet general, like genuine enthusiasts when you go out to that event. Um, when is that event? Beer Festival. Uh, I believe it's the, it's the halfway through the year. It's like last year is the first weekend in June. Um, we will be out at CBC before that. Okay. Um, although that's more industry focused, but we'll be out there in Denver this year also. Yeah, that stands for the Craft Brewers Conference. Uh, like Brandon was saying, it's a lot of uh, modules um, and different workshops for people involved in all aspects of the industry. Um, for some more acutely local places where we'll be available, um, I think we're going to do uh, the Brickskeller Holiday Ale Tasting that they do with the Beer Baron, uh, which is the uh, former Brickskeller. That's a real historical event around here, though. It's uh, definitely got a lot of steam. Yeah, um, and that'll be a ticketed event. And then another one, which we just got today, was uh, from our friends up in Baltimore at um, Pratt Street Ale House, uh, which does Oliver's Ale. They're also doing a holiday tasting. So those will be two local events where you'll at least find uh, one of us or both of us. And if anybody's interested in coming to our holiday party, if you're local around here, that'll be at Meridian Pint on, uh, I think, the 16th of December. That's always a fun time. We usually have some pretty rare stuff from us that's not readily available, and uh, we're always there spreading the holiday cheer. No bah humbugs. Nice, nice, good deal. And and they can, anyone can always stop by the, uh, the tap room or the growler hour room um, I know that you guys are both very accessible uh, in that in that space as well. Yeah, yeah. Primarily uh, on Saturdays, um, you know, one of us uh, will be there, stop by. But yeah, we're typically we're fairly large bar flies, so we're in and about town, which any given night of the week. So cool. 
All right, and this is the final question I have for you guys because I'm, I'm confused on the debate versus, even if there is a debate, on delicious versus big. Um, and I know one of your hit beers, uh, and I want to know how y'all came up with this name. On, I want to know how you came up with all your names, but especially on the Wings of Armageddon. Um, I want a little history of that, and I know that's y'all's double IPA uh, masterpiece. Yeah, that one was um, uh, typically... Like most uh, brainstorming sessions start, it's just Brandon and myself kind of chatting uh, together over our desks, being like, "Hey, what uh, you know? What, what do we want to brew? What's exciting to both of us?" Um, and since the end of the Mayan calendar, I guess it was basically last year on the twenty second of uh, December. Twenty first. Twenty first. I think. Twelve twenty one. I'm sure the calendar. The calendar nerds will probably call me out, but um, but yeah. So uh, you know, I did a little research on it and found out that it was. Actually, not the end of the world that was coming. It was essentially a shift in kind of collective consciousness from to a to like a female, I guess, consciousness away from a male consciousness. Um, and it was kind of predicted by the Hopi Indians as well. Um, nothing really said that once that calendar ends, the world will end. But we kind of took a fun play on that. Uh, so thus, you kind of have what we more or less interpret, uh, you know, the angel of death with his wings that will be sweeping over the, the barren landscape of the world. Um, and as far as the beer goes, we had a unique uh, hop that we were able to procure from our hop provider called Falconer's Flight, um, which is kind of a hybrid mix of a bunch of different varieties. And we were, you know, one of the first breweries in the area to get our hands on it. Uh, so it's a single IPA with that hop. And we figured any beer that we're going to name after the end of the world needs to be pretty strong. So that's why it's clocking in around 9.5% take the edge off when the, the impending doom is coming. Uh, so that's a little bit of a backstory on that. Brandon will probably add to it. Yeah, we, um, I mean, we wanted to have some name that had to do with like flight in some sort of way because of the Falconer's Flight um, kind of hop blend that's used in it. So we wanted to have some reference to that. And that was, I think, how like the wings like idea first came into play. Um, but like, I mean, that's a funny beer because a lot of times when we're, when we're making a beer, we start off with like knowing the style we want to make first. And we were thinking like we wanted to make a beer for the end of the world. And we were like, well, if we're going to make a beer for the end of the world, it does have to be big, like Jeff was saying. And at that point, we hadn't brewed a double IPA yet. And we were like, all right, though, this would be a great time to do a double IPA then. Um, and so it was, it was fun because it kind of like came out of the concept instead of the other way around. But, um, but yeah, it was a fun one. And it's one that people seem to have the most fun saying. Uh, it's abbreviated as Atwoa a lot of the time, so like I'll see that popping up on like the internet everywhere, which is kind of funny. Um, but you know, we we enjoy that, and we're glad people. Uh, we're just humbled and thrilled that people actually you know like it so much. And I mean, when we release it here, they come from you know a few states away, which is always pretty humbling to see a parking lot full of license plates from kind of all over. It's pretty cool. Sweet. Um, Jeff, is the future in bold, hoppy beers or delicious, drinkable beers? Uh, I think, uh, personally, I think bold, hoppy beers will always have a place. Uh, I think kind of as the collective American palate as a whole, um, you know, gets more educated through drinking. Um, I know myself, uh, when I first got into beers, um, I really liked uh, a lot of German lagers, which I still do. Um, I still like a lot of hoppy beers. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like for someone getting into craft beer, uh, hoppy beers are, you know, one of the more easily, um, identifiable traits in a beer. So it makes for good conversation across the board. Um, and obviously with all, all beer, it's all subjective. 
Um, so as long as you can kind of stimulate good conversation from it. Uh, I, I actually see, you know, a lot of American uh, brewers now uh, starting to do like, you know, basically a lot of really good lagers. Um, you know, typically, you know, Germany is regarded as like the holy grail for any and all things lagers. But you have a lot of good uh, producers stateside. Um, like I said, I think it's going to continue to see big, you know, big beers being pushed at every possible boundary. Um, but then you're going to start seeing, I think, more normal strength and normal hop beers around like four and a half to five percent. Um, because as much as a lot of people want to drink hoppy beers all the time, it's uh, it taxes the palate a bit. So I think just more of a more of an educated consumer base, uh, better brewing base. Um, you know, essentially taking these classics from overseas and recreating them uh, with really good, you know, um, really good accuracy over here. Sweet. All right, before we wrap this puppy up, Brandon, tell us why a monkfish is named a monkfish. Oh. <laughs> That's kind of a weird fact, huh? Uh, well, no, I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, so I, I always thought this was an interesting story. Um, but, like, uh, you know, there's this fish called monkfish that is, I guess it's kind of res- re- like regarded as the lobster of fish and and it's just very uh, interesting fact. Uh, so a long, long time ago, when the fishermen used to uh, bring in their catch for the day, um, they, would, they would bring in their nets, and they would have these super ugly fish. And the monkfish is actually very, quite repulsive looking, I would say. Um, and so they couldn't sell these fish at the market. Um, so what they would do is they would give them away to the abbeys and to the monks, and it was kind of their, their charitable contribution to to the monks, so they became known as monkfish. So, I just thought that was an interesting fact. I always, I always stoop re- uh, waiters at restaurants with that, with that fact. Nice. They probably think I'm a jerk, but like, <laughs> whenever I see, whenever there's like a monkfish special, I say, "Oh, you know uh, why they call it monkfish?" And nobody's known yet. So, that's a great fun fact to, to have. His <laughs> one, one year old son will hear that story for many years to come. I think a million I'm times. <laughs> Yeah, all right, guys. Look, man, I, I really appreciate this interview. This was this was great. Uh, we, we got to learn more about DC Brown and you guys personally. Um, I Once again, thank you, and we will talk to you soon. Sounds good, Chris. All right, Thanks have a good one, Chris. Thanks. All right, cheers.